welcome to the Practical Research Parenting Podcast. Here's your host, Nicole Weeks. I'm really excited because today I'm going to talk to Dr. Laura Markham. You may have heard of Dr. Laura Markham. She founded AHA Parenting at www.ahaparenting.com, so that's A-X-A parenting.com. Laura is a PhD qualified clinical psychologist from the US. I love Laura's book, Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings, and feel it's been a factor in the wonderful relationship my two and four-year-old have at the moment. Something I really like about Laura's work is that it's based on theory and evidence, which she cites in her books, but at the same time her advice is practical, detailed and down-to-earth. Unfortunately, the audio quality wasn't great, but the content is fantastic. If it's too hard to listen to, you can go to the show notes and request the transcript. As soon as someone requests one, I'll prepare and upload it within a week. You can find the show notes and request the transcript at www.practicalresearchparenting.com forward slash sibling. Here's the first half of the interview. So thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today, Laura. I really admire your work and I was so excited when you accepted Uh, I'm glad to be here with you. Wonderful. So I read Peaceful Parent, Happy Siblings and loved how practical it was. We've had really good results with it. I've read it probably a year ago now. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's built on the foundation of peaceful parenting practices. So what are peaceful parenting practices? Yes. So peaceful parenting, I want to start by saying, does not mean that you're always peaceful. It's an aspiration. (laughs) Right. No, no one is peaceful all the time. And uh, well, maybe Mother Teresa, but she's not a mother. So (laughs) no parent is peaceful all the time. You have, you know, you have young children, so they're going to behave like children. So when I say peaceful, what I really mean is we make a commitment to a more peaceful home and more peaceful interventions with our children. And the only way to do that is to notice our own uh, moods, our own sense of well-being, mm-hmm. to notice when we're getting cranky or frustrated, and to take responsibility for our own emotions so we don't just lash out at our kids. Mm-hmm. So that's the most important part of peaceful parenting, and I call that regulating ourselves. Some people call it mindfulness. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of different ways we could think of it. But I think of it, I think this is our most important parenting responsibility. Mm, I also, I I do include two other things in my general philosophy and approach. Mm. One is connecting with your child. And that's because the, the only way we can influence someone else's behavior is through the relationship. You can't control your child. You can't control another human being. That's why we have free will. But you can influence someone else, and you do it always through the relationship you have. So I think parenting is really at least 80% connection because kids won't accept our direction unless they feel connected. So that's the second part of peaceful parenting. And because we're always paying attention to the relationship, mm. it it's not about... Um, manipulating. It's not about controlling. It's not about strategies that would work with any person because your child's an individual. Mm. And it's about that individual relationship between you and your child. And so that's the, you don't have to do violence to your child by manipulating them or coercing them. You only have to have a relationship with them and that's where your influence comes from. Mm. So that's the second part of peaceful parenting. And the final part is just to 
to coach your child instead of trying to control them. Because as I say, you can't control them. And controlling always comes down to punishment, reward, coercion of some sort. And it never gets the results we want, which is to raise a human being who is able to be their best self and wants to be their best self in any given situation in which they find themselves when you're not there because you will not be there forever and you you will be there a lot less than you think mm-hmm. depending on how old your child is now you know so we can, think about a coach a coach can't play the game for the child what mm-hmm. they do is help the child to play the best game they can and that's our job our job is not to manipulate them to do something in specific that moment our job is to help our children play the game, whatever that is, to be their best selves in any situation in which they find themselves at every point in their lives. Yeah. So that's coaching. Yep. These are principles that I believed in pre-kids and I, I still do, um, but once the rubber hits the road, they become much harder. Trying to let go of the control, I guess, when you feel like there's something you really want your children to do or you think, feel they need to do as the mother you feel you know best in some circumstances. I think that's when I find it really hard to stick to these principles. And you're right. It's, that's true for every parent because it is our job to, to make sure our children go to bed at a reasonable hour, that they brush their teeth, that they teeth that they occasionally wash their face, that they, you know, um, don't hit other kids and steal their toys, Mm -hmm. that they, you know, don't run through the supermarket knocking everything off the shelves. You know, yes, you're totally right. There are things we need to insist on in our children's behavior. Mm -hmm. And so it is very hard when we are in those situations to use these ideas if, if we have been raised in another way, because we go automatically, we do what we know about what parents do with children. And we, where do we learn those things in our own childhoods? So the hard part is relearning a new, you know, it's really a whole new way of thinking about children and parents. Yeah, I've certainly found that. Um, So moving on, how much do our parenting practices influence the relationship between our children? The research shows a great deal. The research shows that our parenting practices have a tremendous influence. And parents are always surprised when I tell them this because they think, well, you know, those two just never got along. From the time she was born, he would whack her. And by the time she could, you know, crawl, she was getting into his stuff and tearing it up and screaming at him. So, you know, parents often don't realize that they actually have a great deal of influence. I'm not saying that children aren't born with their own personalities, which sometimes rub each other the wrong way. Absolutely true. It's like for any other human beings. Mm. And I'm not saying that children automatically get along because they don't. They, Mm. why would they, they, they see someone there who is a competitor for a scarce resource and they, you know, protect their turf, whether the resource is mommy's attention or their toy, you know, so, Mm. and, and they don't necessarily have very good self-control. They don't have their prefrontal cortex very well developed. Mm. They have big emotions. Uh, and so naturally, they have a lot to learn about getting along. Mm. But that's where parents come in because the way the parents teach those lessons matters tremendously. Mm. And also, 
I said scarce resources. Yeah. What if they didn't think it was a scarce resource to have mommy hold you or beam at you or play with you? What I mean, I realize that many parents feel overextended when they have only one child and you had a second one and you yeah. feel even more so, right? It is, you can't be in two places at once. It is true. So it's always a challenge. But mm. with enough uh, what I call preventive maintenance mm. and connection with each child, the research shows that the children get along better with each other. Mm. And I'll take it a step further. The research is very clear that the more negative a parent-child relationship is, the worse that child will get along with their siblings. So if you have a child who's very difficult and you're always yelling at them, mm. that child is going to get along worse with their siblings. Now you could say, well, of course, they're a difficult child. But remember, they also feel pretty bad about themselves because they're getting yelled at all the time. So naturally, they're going to take that on on someone else. Yeah, I guess we've also got to remember that we're always modeling in everything we do. Um, and when we're yelling at that child, uh, the other child, I guess, is learning that the way to behave with this other child is to yell. Nicole, that is such a great point. In fact, there's a new research study that I just read about today mm -hmm. that reinforces this, where they the researchers modeled for three-year-olds doing something that was completely made no sense and had no meaning in our mm. culture. So they, mm. they, they had a bag and they took things out of the bag and then they rubbed those things along the table, right? right. And the children, and you know, it was nothing that we would, any of us would recognize as appropriate behavior or, or inappropriate. It just didn't have any meaning. Yeah. The three-year-olds all learned from this one exposure that that was what you were supposed to do with the things in this bag. You were supposed to rub along the table. And later, another researcher did something different with the things in the bag. And the children said, no, no, that's not what you do. You rub them here. <laughs> so in one exposure, the children had learned the right way to handle this situation. Mm. So think about our repeated demonstrations to our children of how we solve problems in our home, for instance. Mm. Your children have plenty of problems. They come up every day in their life because they want things they have to get away from somebody else or convince someone to give them, or they, you know, can't, ha you know, they can't have something they want, or they, you know, want to do something they're not allowed to do. And they're constantly in a position to solve problems. Now, your three-year-old knows an awful lot about how to solve problems by the way you solve problems. So what does that look like? Does that look like you yell at somebody, you smack them? You say, all right, that's it. On to the naughty step with you. You know, is that the way we solve problems? Right? Because if we do that, they will do their own version of that yeah. to their sibling. Yeah. Okay. So fascinating. So you've sort of touched on it, but what parenting practices support sibling relationships? The number one thing the research shows mm -hmm. is a close relationship with each child. The more they feel like you adore them, you appreciate them, you have more than enough love for them, you couldn't possibly love anyone else more than you love them. And by the way, those are things you shouldn't say to your child, each child. The more they feel that, the less worried they are about having competition. After all, you couldn't love anyone else more. Why should they worry? They can afford to be nice to their sibling. Mm. So that close and positive relationship makes all the difference in the world. And the converse, of course, is if it's a negative relationship, as I said, they'll have a worse relationship. Um, another thing that, that supports the sibling relationship, we've already talked about modeling, but being very specific in your modeling so that when your three-year-old goes up 
and wants the rattle that the baby is, has picked up mm. and goes to take the rattle from the baby, you can model what to do. Instead of saying, don't do that. Mm. That's mean. Be nice to her. That's not going to help him learn not to grab toys. If you instead go over and say, oh, that rattle looks like fun, doesn't it, sweetheart? The baby's having her turn. Let's ask her, and it's better, by the way, to use the name of the baby because then she's more human to him, yeah. you know. Susanna's having her turn. Let's ask Susanna if she's done with her, with the rattle yet. Mm. And, you know, Michael looks at you and you say, let's ask her, Susanna, there's your rattle. Are you done with the rattle? Mm, hard to tell, isn't it? I know. Let's find something to trade with her. Mm. And then we'll know she's done with it if she gives it to us. So you and Michael look around for something. You say, do you think she'd like that? Let's try it out. Well, let's bring that as backup. And you go back over to Susanna and you model. Susanna, do you want this? And Susanna's, of course, delighted with the game where she mm. gives you the rattle and you give her something and you give it back and forth. And she might be very happy to give you the rattle. The game is much more interesting. Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, I guess she's done with it. She liked the trade. She was ready to be done with her turn. So you can use the rattle, Michael. Now, Michael by now wants whatever she's holding because it wasn't really about the rattle, right? Yeah. So, but you, so when he goes to grab that, you say, oh, Michael, let's ask her if she wants to trade for the rattle. So you're you're basically teaching by showing him and modeling him, but you're doing it in the same encouraging, sweet, supportive way mm -hmm. that you would show him how to undo the latch on the garden gate. Yeah. You're not saying, don't do that, be nice. You're yeah. saying, oh, you need a new skill. Here, let's work together on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's so wonderful. And I have used that with my kids and I think it's really helped. And I see Xander using that language by himself now without my prompting, which is just, it's wonderful. Um, Isn't that great? Parents often think, oh, I can't do that. I've got, you know, to get dinner on the table. Yeah. But actually, if you do this on a regular basis, they will pick it up. They will do it themselves. And yeah. how fantastic. You don't have to be involved in everything. Yeah, that's right. And a dilemma that I did come across, I, I think it was once I've, I'd learned about this, was when I was too late, when I'd just come in and Xander had already snatched the toy and Beth was already crying. And I wasn't sure what to do because if I took it back off Xander to give to Beth, then I was modeling yeah. exactly the same behavior as I didn't want them to be yes. doing. But I didn't want yes. to let the injustice slide by just letting Xander have the toy and Beth cry about it. So what, yes. what is this your is approach the there? You're totally right about this dilemma. Okay. Mm. So I do uh, what um, favor, uh, famous uh, authors, Faber and Maslisch, who wrote How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk, yeah. um, they call this describe, describe, describe. You describe what you see happening. Mm. So you might say, um, Oh, so you have to first take a deep breath because you want to smack him. Oh, he just made your baby cry. You know, you're, yeah. you're like, mama, you a protector. So the first thing you do is take a deep breath. Then you go over close and you touch her and you say, oh, you're crying. Beth is crying. Sandra, look, Beth is crying. And you put your arm around him so he's not feeling criticized, right? Yeah. You, but you're, you're touching both children so they both feel connected to you. And you say, Beth is crying. I wonder what she's saying. Now, she might. She's two. She might actually have the words to say it. But when they're upset, they may not have the words. And you could say, Beth, are you telling Xander that you want your toy back? And at this point, she feels hurt. She might even stop crying and say, back, back, and point to him or something. Yeah. 
you know, even if it's not very verbal. Um, but she might just keep crying and cling to you and be like, you know, ah. mm-hmm. um, and you say, she's saying she wants her toy back. So you're being the interpreter here. Yeah. You're describing what's actually happening. You're doing it without judgment. Mm-hmm. But you're taking it a step further than description. You're being the interpreter between two people who supposedly speak the same language but are both still really learning to express yeah. themselves in English. Um, and you're you're saying, Xander, she says she wants her toy back. And Xander looks a little shank-based and maybe he's holding it behind his back. Or he's mm-hmm. saying it's my turn now or something like that. And you say... Oh, you wanted a turn now, but it looks like she wasn't ready. So you, did you find something to trade with her? We need to give mm-hmm. her something. Let's get for this while we go look for something. Now, if you've done it in a non-attacking way like that, yeah. and he thinks you're on his side and you're going to help him find something else to trade with her, he probably will give her the toy back. Yeah. It's when we dash in with our guns blaring and say, no. that's it, that's the third time this morning. You know, give that back, and he's screaming, say, no, no, and he mm-hmm. runs away from you and hides, you know, shoves it under the couch and won't let you have it, you know. So I think part of it is the way we intervene. If mm-hmm. you, you are going to get into a try to pull it out of his hands moment because he feels so threatened. But if you do it in the way I described, he feels like, well, I may not get what I want, this toy, Mm-hmm. But I'm going to get something better. Mom's on my side. She's trying to help me solve my problem. And mom understands no matter what. And then he's not on the defensive. Then he's not clinging to the toy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Just um, emphasizes, I guess, how important it is to be calm and aim for peaceful. Because that's a much more peaceful resolution than you would have if you went in guns blazing, which can be very easy to do when you're angry. Uh, always. And, you know, it's, I would just tack on to that when you asked what kinds of parenting practices support sibling relationships. I think all humans need to learn to stand up for themselves and get their needs met without attacking the other person. Mm. Imagine if all of us knew that in our marriages when we first got married. Wouldn't that be amazing, right? <laughs> you know, it, it changes every relationship you have if you can express your needs without attacking the other person. Yeah. And so children need to learn that from us. That's one of the most important skills for siblings to learn mm-hmm. to get along with each other. So if we go in with our guns blazing, our need is to restore the toy to the child who's crying, who mm-hmm. had the right to that toy and who was done an injustice when it was taken away from her. Mm. But if we do that with guns blazing, we're on the attack. Mm. So if we can go in and express Beth's need without attacking Xander, he's having it modeled for us how to do that. And she's having it modeled. Mm. So another thing that I suggest to parents usually is that they coach the child who had the toy taken away from them Mm. to stand up for herself. So Beth is only two in the story, so... You know, she may not be that verbal, mm. but you can say, you know, you say, oh, Beth, are you crying because you're, you're, you don't have your toy? You wanted the toy. Yes, yes, I see Xander has the toy. You want the toy back. You can tell Xander. And, you know, you've got your arm around both of them, each of them. Mm. So they're both right there. It's not like Xander doesn't see what's going on. Yeah. But you're not snapping at Xander. You're not even saying, Xander, give the toy back. You're saying, Beth, you can tell Xander it was still my turn. So you're, you're saying the words for her, but you're 
giving her the words and he's hearing them. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. So this might be, it's jumping ahead a bit, but this might be a good point to introduce your idea on sharing. Yes, I think that um, I struggled with this when my kids were little and I didn't come up with this until later. And around the same time that I was starting to tell parents, you know, just let them use the toy as long as they want. Mm. I was doing that because of the research I'd read. Some other people had read the research, and I was calling it self-regulated turns. I'm not sure what other people call it. Mm. But the best description of it, I think, I mean, of course, it's in my book, but someone Mm. who describes it beautifully is Heather Shoemaker, Mm. whose book uh, is, uh, it's okay not to share. In fact, it's based, that has many different, small chapters in it that talk about common issues between children, really in a nursery school setting, but of course it's it works for siblings too, these mm-hmm. ideas. And um, so I don't remember whether she calls it self-regulated turns or something else, but basically what we do is we say the child who has the toy can use it for as long as they want up to a certain point. And, you know, mm-hmm. you can't say for the rest of their lives, but you can say until lunchtime or until supper time or until bedtime. Mm. And so the child gets the opportunity to really play with that toy deeply. Mm. And the reason we think that's a good thing is that all of us are reading the research on play, which shows that children play is their work. And the chance to actually play with something for a while deepens their play and makes it much more creative, and they learn so much more from it. So when they have to constantly give something up after 15 minutes, it sort of defeats the purpose of the play. So that's one reason to do this. But there's another entirely different, but I think even more important reason, and that's that the child then gets the experience of being generous. Mm. She knows she's going to have that toy for as long as she wants it, and when she does give it to her sibling, she gets that, she gives it up, with more open-heartedness instead of, oh, right, it's been 15 minutes and the timer went off and I have to give this to you, I hate you. She's instead saying, yeah, I'm done with it. And maybe it's even before tea time when she said she would give it up. And so she hands it over and she sees the look on her sister's face. And her sister's so happy to have this toy. And so the girl giving it up feels like, wow, I'm a good person. And it makes her feel so good inside. So there's a great deal of research now on generosity and how children develop generosity. And the the punchline to that is they develop generosity when they have the experience mm. of open-heartedly, not coercively, but open-heartedly giving something to someone and feeling what that feels like. Because humans, it turns out, have a genetic advantage when they share with each other, mm. as long as it's not as long as it's not to their own detriment, right? If they were giving it up their own food in order to get that good feeling, the human race wouldn't survive, right? But some of their extra food when they've had enough means the human race does a better job of surviving. So that's how we're designed. So we get a good feeling when we give something to someone as long as our needs are met too. So that's what we want for our children is the chance to use it to a reasonable amount of time when they decide what's reasonable, when they are done with it. But, if they would use it all week, then we do have to say, sorry, just till tea time. Yeah. And yeah. then they get that great feeling when they give it up. Now, of course, I can just hear the parents listening to this saying, well, that works for the child who gets to keep the toy, sure. But what about the other one who's crying, mm-hmm. right? Because they want it. And she 
have to put up with waiting till tea time. And I, I do hear that, and I know it's much harder for the parent, but here's what I've observed, because, of course, I've suggested this to many, many families, and they all come back and tell me the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to put into effect for the first week, because the child, and it's, it's usually a different child every day who doesn't get what they want. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's mm-hmm. the little one, because the big one always knows to go pounce on the toy, because they have more prefrontal cortex and they can plan ahead, but, <laughs> but often... It's just as much that the little one grabs something and the big one wants it because the little one has it but has to wait, right? And here's what happens. First of all, they all learn the rule. So as long as they end up knowing this is the rule, they, they adapt to it. So that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do it with much less fuss because remember what the fuss was about. The fuss was to prove to the parent that the child was very unhappy and the parent needed to intervene to make the child happy. Mm-hmm. So... Their eyes demonstrating the fuss, so we will intervene. And they, they think of it as very arbitrary because, in fact, it is. Think about it. We intervene when, we, when it's unpleasant for us. <laughs> so yeah. we, we don't intervene until it's unpleasant for us. So it's sort of arbitrary when we intervene and when we don't, right? Mm. And so right, unless we get in the habit of sticking up for one child always like the little one, in which case that's even worse, right? Because then it means you're setting up a constant struggle between the two of them, a dynamic where it's always weighing in on one kid's side. But in general, what happens with kids when we introduce this new thing is they stop lobbying us to get the toy. And they know they just have to wait till tea time, but they also develop other strategies like, oh, Henry, how about I use it with you? Or, okay, you can use the dump truck, but what if I build a road for you? Or, you know, there's all kinds of ways they start to play together better, actually, instead of constantly trying to get things away from each other. So that's something that happens. Now, here's another thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Child, for instance, the child who is the older child, who when they see the little one with it, they, they just have to have that thing. And they, they get so upset that they have to wait, and they burst into tears, and they throw their things, and they, they yell, I hate you, Mommy. Um, that child, it's really not about that toy. Mm-hmm. It's about something mm-hmm. deep. And they, the reason they're always taking things or wanting things that the sibling has is because they're worried the sibling is taking everything that is dear to them, like their parent. So at this moment, if the parent can stay compassionate and can say, oh, it's so hard to wait, for your turn, I'll help you wait, sweetie. Mm. You're mm. so bad right now. I see it's so hard to wait. I will help you. The child, first of all, gets to show you the depth of their woundedness and their fear that they've lost you mm. and are losing everything mm. to to them. They also, in addition to getting that off their chest, which makes them happier, they also get the opportunity to have your undivided attention mm. and understanding. So again, they're thinking, I don't get everything I want. I have to wait for the toy, but you know, I do get something better. My parent always understands and tries to help me and take care of me and make me feel better. So that's something a lot better. And what we find is after that child has their meltdown, they calm down, they go play with something else. And when the other one is done with the toy, they often don't even give it a second glance. It was never about the toy. Mm. It was about mm. what the sibling had. So what we see is it's a much more peaceful home when you adopt these self-regulated terms. Yeah, I have. I've been using them for a while now, and I've seen all of the things you you've mentioned. And I've, I mean, I love 
often the kids will give the thing to the other other child when they're finished. And I just love that look of joy in the child receiving, but also the child giving. It's just a really beautiful moment. I know parents who haven't done this can't believe that this could be true. My child willingly gives something up, never. But when you begin to do this, that's what happens. Yeah. In the show notes, you'll find a summary of this discussion, a link to Laura's site, Aha Parenting, her books and free resources, and other references we mentioned. You can also request the transcript there. Please look out for the second half of this interview too, where we discuss parenting strategies that can undermine sibling relationships and time out, among other things. So the show notes are at www.practicalresearchparenting.com forward slash sibling.